Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 24th of June 2019 and this is episode 119. On today's programme, Wen Lun Peng from the Meridian Society talks about the Chinese Labour Corps on the Western Front during the Great War. Wen Lun, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about how you became interested in the Great War and the Chinese Labour Corps in particular? Do you have a particular personal connection with the Corps? Well, actually, it all happened, I suppose, just prior to the four-year commemoration of uh, World War One. As you know, the whole of Britain was going crazy about, you know, how people should commemorate uh, the Great War. And so just purely out of curiosity, I started um, surfing the Internet to see whether there might be a Chinese angle. And I just came across the Chinese Labour Corps totally by accident. I had no prior knowledge of them whatsoever. So it was as great a discovery to me then as it is now to people to whom I tell the story. Um, But I just thought that it was important to bring this story to the fore. And so together with the Meridian Society, which is a London-based charity uh, committed to the promotion of uh, Chinese culture, we decided that we would apply for a grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund, and we were successful. And so with that grant, first and foremost, we made an oral history film trying to find descendants of uh, Chinese labourers and also of Western officers and made this uh, oral history film. And then in the next year or two, we then took it around the country, screening it at various venues, holding workshops at community centres and schools, also mounting a small exhibition of CLC memorabilia and uh, photographs, and also importantly, holding commemoration services at Plymouth, Liverpool and Folkestone, where a number of them are buried. Uh, These were people who died en route to France. Personally, I don't have uh, any connection with the CLC. I'm not from that part of the country. So to begin with, what was the Chinese Labour Corps and why was it created and what was its purpose? To begin with, uh, this is going back historically somewhat, but it is important to understand China's uh, situation at this time. Ever since the Opium War of 1840, Um, And throughout the next hundred years or so, which the Chinese call the century of humiliation, China was constantly invaded by various Western imperial powers. And these included Britain, obviously, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, um, Russia, uh, Japan, etc., etc., Austro-Hungary, of course. And invariably, whenever each of these powers went into China, they would choose a part of the country that was most suitable for their purposes, whether it was because of its mineral resources or because of its proximity to the sea, etc., etc. And so gradually China was being weakened. Now I have to add here that China's own government, which was under the uh, the imperial dynasty of the Qing, was totally corrupt and incompetent and therefore unable to prevent these invasions from taking place. So as it grew weaker and weaker, people just felt that it was important to 
get China back onto the international stage. And so when war broke out um, at the Western Front, when China heard about this, the government then thought, well, maybe this is a chance for us to actually get ourselves back onto the international scene. So they, in fact, uh, very proactively offered to take part in the war. Now, of course, it was then a decision as to whether they should side with the Germans and Austro-Hungary or whether they should side with the Western allies. And they decided to decide with the Western allies, partly because they felt that one of the most important things to do at the time was to regain control of the province of Shandong. Now, Shandong province was at the time under German control. Now, it wasn't that they hated the Germans more than any other imperial power, but what they thought at the time was that if the Germans lost the war, then hopefully China, by being involved with the Western allies, would then regain control of Shandong province. And the importance of that was that they knew that if Shandong province were left unoccupied by the Germans, then surely another much greater enemy would occupy it, and that was Imperial Japan. And so that was the idea, that they would uh, try to uh, support the Western allies by sending, first of all, labourers, sorry, uh, first of all, by by sending troops and then labourers. Now, at first, Britain didn't really care for China's support for a number of reasons. Number one, as you well know, um, everyone thought that the war would end by Christmas. And so no one had any idea that it would last for so long. Secondly, China was had hardly proved itself to be able to defend its own borders, never mind anybody else's borders. And so the British kind of poo-pooed the whole idea. And then thirdly, also quite importantly, China at the time was a neutral power. So it would have been illegal for it to have been involved in the war. So finally, uh, the only reason that they, they were accepted in the end was because of the Battle of the Somme. And as you know, with the Battle of the Somme on the first day alone, you had 60,000 casualties suffered by Britain alone. And so at that time, finally, Britain realised the importance of recruiting manpower because, of course, every able-bodied man in Britain had to go to the front. But then who would then man all the munitions factories or unload and load at the docks and so on and so forth? And so someone had the brilliant idea of recruiting from Shandong province. The reason that they chose Shandong, totally coincidentally, by the way, was because originally Britain had wanted to recruit from Hong Kong, Hong Kong being a British colony by now. And so it would have been very easy to transport people out of there. But as you know, Hong Kong enjoys a very hot and humid climate, which was very different from conditions at the front. And I think everyone has seen archive footage of conditions at the front where you see the trenches in these dismal, cold, damp um, conditions. And so it was felt that they needed to find people who were a good deal more hardy. And people from Shandong are known, even back in China, as Shandong Da Han, which means literally Shandong big chaps, because they are big and burly. They're very strong indeed. And also Shandong can have very harsh conditions in the winter. So they were perfect for the job. Also, the Germans, 
have to be thanked for their contribution while they had occupied Shandong, and that is that they built a very good system of railroads. And so the British were able to use these railroads to penetrate that province and to recruit. And I must say that um, at the time, a lot of the recruitment was done by word of mouth and a great deal by missionaries who were active in the region. Now, I have to confess that my geography of modern China is uh, pretty poor. Whereabouts is Shandong province in modern day China? Right. Now, Shandong province is on the coast and it's to the central part of China, but to the east bang on the coast. And you will notice from a map of China that Shandong province is sort of almost, you know, a diamond shape. And half of that diamond is coastline, which is why the Germans thought so highly of that place, because it was strategically positioned with a huge coastline, which they could use for uh, either commerce or for naval purposes. So what? So once all these uh, men were recruited uh, from China, what sort of work did they do on the Western Front when they arrived? The kind of work that the Chinese labourers undertook was mainly manual, heavy labour. So things like digging trenches, building railroads, um, and also uh, unloading, loading at the docks. Then the more skilled labourers would work inside munitions factories or repairing tanks. And there's a very uh, famous uh, photograph from the Boffington Museum of a tank which was supposedly repaired by the Chinese. So you did have a mixture of people, but I would say that largely they were used for the heavier stuff. There's a very good anecdote uh, that I heard from a Scottish descendant of um, a Chinese, uh, of a of a corporal, I think, uh, attached to the Chinese Labour Corps, who said that the Chinese were supposed to help the British troops reinforce the trenches, because, as you know, with all the rain and the wetness, very often the trenches would collapse. And so they had to reinforce them. Now, the Chinese knew how to dig. That was no problem at all, because they were largely farmers anyway. But what they didn't know was how to reinforce them. So according to the anecdote, what happened was that the British were, first of all, would, would reinforce them to show the Chinese. So after they've done this um, kind of uh, reinforcing, the, the translator, uh, Mr. Wong, goes off and, and explains everything to the Chinese uh, labourers. And then there's a very long confab and obviously they're discussing things in some detail finally mr wong the interpreter comes back and he says well the labor said that that's not a problem but they don't want to be set work according to time what they would rather do is to be set work according to amount so in other words how many yards or hundreds of yards of trenches do you want them to reinforce now the british didn't really know what the reason for this was but they said yeah fine okay so they were set the task and they were just so good, so fast, so efficient that invariably they'd finish by mid-afternoon and end up in their barracks drinking tea in the afternoon. So, you know, that just shows you how efficient they were. And according to our research, apparently um, Douglas Haig, who was in charge of the British Expeditionary Force during the war, uh, actually 
said in great admiration, by Jove, I wish I had a whole army of those chaps properly trained. So there we are. So when then, what sort of pay did Chinese labourers receive when they when they came over to Europe to work? Well, the pay that they got was very little compared with troops, with uh, British troops. But for these Chinese peasants, it was a huge amount of money. So they would be uh, paid typically, um, it was stipulated in the contract, that each of them would receive one franc a day in Europe or 1.5 francs, one and a half francs if they were a ganger, which meant you know, in charge, sort of a four-man kind of figure in charge of a, a platoon or a company. And then their families back in the village were given 10 silver dollars per month or 15 silver dollars in the case of gangers. And the reason that the British decided to pay the majority of the salary to the uh, to the families back in China was because when the French recruits arrived in France and they did so before the uh, with, uh, before the British recruits, it was discovered that a lot of them, a lot of these um, uh, farmers, were actually gambling their wages away and. It's understandable because, you know, they had nothing to entertain themselves in the evenings. And this was one way of doing so. And of course, you know, while maybe many of the British and French troops would have written home, a lot of these, most of them, most of these recruits were illiterate, so they couldn't write home. And so they would just spend their time playing cards, playing chess, and then gambling their money away. So when the British brought their recruits over, they were much wiser. They decided, well, in order to prevent them from gambling their money away, we're going to send most of the money to the village. Now, quite a lot of the money did manage to get to the families, but it was unfortunate that in many cases, the money didn't get there, either because the families didn't know how to go and receive the, uh, the the pay, they had to apparently go to the local recruitment station. And that could be several miles walk um, because you know, these villages were remote. Either that or they simply didn't know about it. Even worse, post-1918, after armistice had been declared, and this is one part of the story that is really tragic, Tom, and which I must absolutely tell people is that, as I say, Shandong had originally been earmarked by the Chinese as the reason for going to war with the Western allies. And they had hoped very much that if the Western allies won the war, then they would be, then China would be rewarded by the return of Shandong into Chinese hands. Now, at the end of the war, when it came to the peace treaty, it was decided by both France and by Britain that China should not be rewarded and that it did not deserve to be rewarded. And Arthur Balfour, who was the foreign secretary at the time, actually said that China didn't deserve it because it had spent neither a shilling nor spared a life um, during this time, which was totally wrong because, of course, China had had at least 2,000 casualties, if not more. And so it was decided that instead of returning Shandong province to China, who had provided 140,000 labourers at the front and without whom the war may have been prolonged, China and Britain decided to give Shandong province to Japan. 
And as a result of that, Japan did declare war on China subsequently. They marched through and took over the whole of the north east of China. You have heard of the awful massacre of Nanjing, during which several hundreds of millions of casualties were uh, were suffered uh, on the Chinese side. So that is something that is totally tragic, that, that can never be forgotten by China. And that's why Chinese descendants of these laborers feel very hard done by that not only was Shandong lost to another greater enemy, but that up till today, they are still not properly remembered and recognised by the British government. Now, we're coming on to how the British viewed um, the Chinese Labour Corps and probably the Chinese, obviously in the context of empire, and in, in the British had a, a rather, should we say, racist view of the world given that time. Invariably, under times of stress and great tension, particularly wartime, it's very easy to take out your pent-up frustrations on the weak and unprotected. And I would say that probably Asians, Egyptians, and in this case, the Chinese were often picked on. The Chinese particularly, I suspect, because, as I said before, they were largely rural peasants, therefore quite coarse in their own ways. They had different habits, which might have been viewed by the British as being uncivilized. They couldn't speak English, obviously, and so I think people would make fun of their accents, of the language that they spoke. Uh, And there were certainly instances of discrimination. There's one example, for for instance, mentioned by the descendant of a Canadian missionary who was in charge of the CLC, who said that when they were still back in Weihai recruiting um, these uh, Shandong people, um, some of them would be used as waiters in, in the uh, canteen. And um, at the time, because they weren't fully prepared to come out to the West, they still had their pigtails. And a pigtail was for men the fashion during the Qing dynasty. And when this particular waiter went up to the table to serve these British officers, one of the officers would give the order for the meal, and then another officer would pull the, 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 the plat of this waiter and say, did you get that? And if he didn't nod or didn't uh, react in any way, he would pull it again and he'd say, did you get that? So, you know, that's the kind of abuse that they suffered. But I think that a lot of the misunderstandings came about mainly because of cultural differences, the fact that they didn't, they weren't able to speak English. Um, And another very famous example of this is that um, very often, uh, because there was no common language, when officers gave their orders, they would have to be very simple orders. So if they wanted the labourers to go and do something, they would shout at them, go, meaning off you go, and then let's set to it. Now, as it happens, the word go in English is very similar in sound to the word go in Chinese, which means dog. So, of course, 
when the Chinese laborers heard this, they thought that they were being, you know, condescended upon and they were being looked down by the by the British officers and they would feel obviously hugely annoyed. Why are you calling me a dog? And so it was misunderstandings like that that often led to disobedience on the part of the Chinese laborers and very often violence, I believe, and sometimes leading to death. And what contribution did the Chinese Labour Corps make to the Allied war effort on the Western Front? It's quite difficult, really, to say how large their contribution was. A number of people, and I would say that even a number of Western academics would agree, that had it not been for the labourers, for the Chinese labourers, the war might have gone on for a good deal longer. Um, I think it's very easy for us always to think of war as the physical skirmishes at the front line, you know, the soldiers actually fighting it out. But what we tend to forget very easily is the work that's done in the background, whether it's at the home front or the mappers, you know, all the coordinators, people at Bletchley Park, for example. And then even at the front, you have people doing the logistical work in the background. And all of this is all important to a war being won. It's not just the contribution of the soldiers, although, of course, their part in it is very great. So, as I say, a number of people do feel very strongly that had it not been for the Chinese labourers, perhaps the war would have gone on much longer and the casualties would have been much higher. And were Chinese members uh, of the Labour Corps killed or injured in their work? And were they affected by the flu pandemic that came in 1918-1919? I believe that there were quite a number of uh, injuries as well as deaths caused by crossfire and also by stray bombs. Um, There's one area in Popperinger in Belgium where apparently there was a CLC encampment near a river and apparently um, a few of them came out, had a smoke and that cigarette light was spotted by a German bomber and some of them were killed in that air raid. So through error and through also just mishap and, and you know, being there at the wrong time. Now, it's interesting to, to note that... Um, in the contract that the CLC had, it did actually specify that they would not be in a danger zone. Now, the very fact that quite a number of them died as a result of crossfire bombings shows that they were in danger zones. Now, these danger zones could have been because they happened to be moving from one place to another. It could have been that Obviously, there were parts, I mean, you can't actually draw a line, can you, and say, okay, you mustn't drop bombs over here, but you can drop them somewhere else. So, you know, I mean, that kind of thing is understandable, although, as you can imagine, because it was actually specified in the contract, many people felt very badly done by um, by that. And then also, the CLC, unbeknownst to many people, um, were responsible for uh, disarming weapons. So if there were bombs that had been unexploded, then they would take them out to some of the barren fields and go and blow them up. And in that course, they, they were, there were a number of casualties too. So, so far, there are altogether just over 2,000 graves of um, Chinese labourers 
and I'm specifying here, uh, laborers recruited by the British um, who are buried in uh, France and Belgium. But academics put it at around perhaps 4,000 or so. And of course, we've got about two dozen in, in Britain as well. Uh, flu pandemic, yes, most certainly they did die of that. And I would say that the large majority of them died of the flu. And um, this is because when armistice was declared, most of the troops went back to their various homelands. But members of the Chinese Labour Corps were told to stay behind to clear the bombs and also to restore the land to agricultural use. Because we mustn't forget that the whole valley of the Somme and, and all those areas nearby were all farmland to begin with. Now, obviously, no one was going to, you know, the French and the Belgians were not going to start restoring this on their own. It was just too vast an area. And so the labourers were told to stay behind to restore them, and that they did. So during that time, of course, many of them did contract the flu epidemic. And did many of the uh, labourers actually leave written records of their experiences on the Western Front? There aren't many records, um, because most of them were illiterate. But there are a number of diaries that we've come across, and these were written by people who were slightly educated. Some of them had perhaps secondary school education. And there's one particular diary written by a person called Sun Gan, which is very insightful indeed. Now, this man unusually um, decided to go to the front, not because he wanted to earn money. And, you know, money was, of course, the main reason for for most of the, the peasant folk going out in the first place. Um, but he decided to go out because his older brother had been to Japan recently and seen the outcome of the Meiji Restoration. And he came back with all sorts of stories about how advanced Japan was becoming now, many people back in China at this time were looking at Japan both with awe and admiration, admiration that uh, an Eastern country that was at one time as weak and poor as, as China could come up so very quickly, but also in awe and fear because they knew that Japan actually had its eyes on China. And so it was really important for China to modernize quickly. And so Sun Gan decided that he would come out to France to see whether he could learn anything from Western development and take back to China. And in fact, when he did go back, he took a number of things, uh, for example, equipment, you know, certainly certain tools that uh, he that he had used, um, uniform, uh, a, a water bottle, simple things like that, but, you know, things that he could actually physically carry. And he held an exhibition of these and he would show people, well, these are the things that I saw at the front. And one of the most important things that he mentioned was the fact that France, Germany, both these countries were industrially very advanced. That's why they had bombs. That's why they had aeroplanes. And none of the CLC had ever seen an aeroplane before. I mean, this was not heard of in China. And many of 
the the peasant folk who came back and told their villagers stories about these planes and about the searchlights, which they had never seen before. People would say, planes, but how can planes fly in the sky? Wouldn't they drop from the sky? So, you know, it, for, for people who had come out to the front, this was really eye-opening. And obviously they were amazed and totally impressed by the kind of technology that that Western Europe had developed by now. And Sun Khan describes these things in his diary. And he says very movingly, he says, China is corrupt. China is weak. Now, if we want to become a strong nation that is recognized by other nations, then we must modernize. We must build up our technology and learn from the West. And how are we commemorating the core today? Well, very sadly, um, there is very little in the way of commemoration, first of all, because the story of the CLC is not that widely known. Um, why that is, is I guess, uh, in Britain at least, is because all the British recruits were repatriated at the end of the war, whereas in France, and France did recruit quite a number. France altogether recruited about 40,000 and Britain recruited about 96, 97,000. And uh, in the case of France, because they had lost so many menfolk, they needed physical labour, of course, as I mentioned, to restore the land. And so they actually encouraged the Chinese labourers to stay behind and many of them did. But in the case of Britain, all of them were repatriated. So the very fact that there aren't any descendants of Chinese labourers here, uh, of British recruits anyway, um, it's not surprising that people don't know about the story because there is no physical evidence of them, as it were. So as part of our project uh, at the Meridian Society, we decided it was really important to commemorate them both in France and Belgium as well as in Britain. So we went to the cemeteries in Folkestone, Plymouth and, Li uh, and Liverpool and held commemoration ceremonies over the past three years and invited members of the local community. And it was greatly appreciated that uh, members of the British Army and the Royal Navy came out in all instances to support us. And that was a very moving tribute and a greatly appreciated gesture. Um, in France and Belgium, we were able to take a number of descendants from Shandong to visit the, the very large Chinese graveyard in Noyelles-sur-Mer, which is uh, by the mouth of the Somme. And we also took them to the Menin Gate um, in April, oh, it must have been 2017. And um, we laid a wreath over there. And we're hoping very much that we'll be able to continue doing this. And of course, I mustn't forget my great, great thanks to the Western Front Association for having learned about what we were doing uh, on the CLC. And um, the chairman, Colin Wagstaff, invited us to take part in your, uh, your Armistice Day ceremony at uh, the Cenotaph last year. And uh, we've been reserved a place again this year. So we'll definitely be there. Looking forward to it. Wenlin, thank you very much for your time. Not at all. It was a great pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. 
Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.